Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I'm very pleased today to welcome Tony Juniper to the podcast. Tony is a British campaigner, writer, sustainability advisor, and environmentalist who spent more than 30 years working for change towards a more sustainable society, making the case for new recycling laws, orchestrating international campaigns for action on rainforests and climate change, providing ecology and conservation experiences for primary school children. Today, Tony works in a variety of roles. He's a special advisor to the Prince of Wales International Sustainability Unit. He's a fellow with the University of Cambridge Institute for Sustainability leadership. He's a trustee of Fauna and Flora International of Solar Aid, Ecologist Resurgent Magazine, and in 2015, he was declared president of the Wildlife Trusts. Well, thank you very much, Tony, for taking the time to speak today to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My pleasure. So, uh, 30 years or more working directly on environmental issues and uh, many, many different issues in many different roles. Can you talk a little bit about the last few years and what what your priorities are and what's on your mind? I think over the the last five years and maybe 10, in fact, we've seen quite a shift in in the way the, the agenda has been working. And I think it's fair to say up until that point there was still quite a lot of scepticism in some really quite important places and of course there's still pockets of that um we're getting some noise there Uh, no i'm fine okay i've got a bit of feedback there are still some pockets of that but i think over the last few years we've seen the acceptance that things do need to change and the penny beginning to drop amongst corporations and amongst many governments to the point now where we are in a period of very rapid transition and for me this has been a time of moving away from really trying to highlight the scale of the challenge and to begin working more in different ways towards implementing the the solutions it's always been a mix of the two of course but i think at the moment we're definitely into a phase where people now are beginning to say okay we understand and what are we going to do about it and this is manifest in the rapid shift towards low carbon energy and transport electric cars being the most recent focal point on that there is a very prominent discussion now about circular economy ideas and moving towards uh, the recapturing of resources to 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 fuel the next round of, of economic development and a big focus on sustainable agriculture, not only in terms of how we're going to reduce emissions and, and, and reduce pollution, but also conserve natural habitats, including tropical rainforests. That's now really on the agenda amongst some major agriculture and resource companies. So that is all relatively quite new. And I, I think it's a very dynamic space and one which is extremely exciting. And I think, you know, by the early 2030s, we'll probably get a sense of whether we did enough in time or are doing enough in time so um, everything's still to play for I would say yes very interesting now clearly uh, many different factors coming into play here uh, policy has been important I think uh, uh, we probably notice it uh, more now in the US where there's going to probably be less policy but I'm just wondering uh, clearly policy is very important similarly uh, uh, stakeholders consumers uh, and and you know just the general public have, have been a big driver of some of these issues as well and, and corporations have have come on board I was wondering a big question but it 
Do you have a sense of the relative contribution to each of those? I mean, how, 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 how important have they been and how important are, do you think they are in driving the sustainability agenda? Well, you're quite right, I think, to, to highlight those three those three groups of influence, the, the, the public, the, the companies and, and, the, and the governments and policymakers. And I think what I've seen over the period that I've been involved in all of this is, is the relative shift of how they're playing uh, more or less prominent roles. And there are periods when it's governments who are, who are setting the scene and banging the drum, other times when it's the public protesting and making demands on the politicians and then other times when when the corporations shift into a leadership position at the moment i think probably actually i would say that it's the private sector that is having uh, the, the the kind of driving role right now and this is evident in countries like the united states where you've seen you know the application of federal leadership um, on climate change and indeed pretty much every environmental issue and so some very substantial corporate Operations now stepping up and saying, okay, well, we're going to do it anyway. Uh, you're finding in Europe, uh, even where there isn't regulation yet on electric vehicles and, and phasing out diesel, the two things kind of running together, that's not quite there as a policy yet, even though there's been some vague announcements. And yet you've got companies like Volvo saying that by 2019, there will be no uh, sole diesel and petrol vehicles on the road they'll be all electric or, 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 or hybrid is what they'll be producing as new models so I, I do think there's reason to believe that the companies have kind of shifted a little bit ahead and this is not only in the west there's, there's companies in asia forestry companies who are saying okay we understand the problems of deforestation arising from oil palm and paper production and these companies are moving ahead of governments there who was still saying, well, you know, let's clear more land for economic growth. And the companies are saying, well, no, let's not, because, you know, this is not only a bad idea from the point of view of the market and what consumers expect, it's also a bad idea from the point of view of rainfall and the extent to which we're going to be able to sustain agriculture anyway. So I think at the moment, the, the companies have moved a little bit ahead of the consumer even, and certainly in many geographies ahead of governments. And I think the reason for that is because they are able to take the slightly longer view. They've got very clever people working in them who are able to join the dots on some of these issues but crucially they've spotted this as a source of risk for their sector and, in, and indeed the entire economy and so quite a lot of them uh, are moving into really quite creative and strategic places uh, and this is I, I think quite encouraging obviously there's plenty of laggards who haven't done this but I think you know the ones that have spotted what is going on and what's likely to be the consequence of that uh, building competitive advantage that will require them to move anyway in a few years even if they don't see it yet themselves right very interesting uh, overview there um I, i'm wondering also about investors uh whether you have a perspective on that that certainly the, the kinds of sums of money that are people are looking at uh being uh involved in in, in it certainly reaching the sdgs and 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 you know low carbon uh economy yeah. generally are, are are kind of pretty eye-watering how, how important do you think investors have been or how on board do you think they are with the sustainability agenda well up, up until quite recently they they, they were almost nowhere there, there, there was a niche uh, group of them the so-called uh, sustainable responsible investment sri whatever they socially responsible investment sri group uh, but i i think you know that that was always going to be quite small uh, and, and in the end actually um, probably not that effective in shifting 
you know, the, the, the bulk of finance, but things are beginning to alter now. And you can see again, as is the case with some of the corporations, uh, a, a real sense of understanding risk in a way that they didn't before. And as a result of that, beginning to take different decisions. And I guess one of the, 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 the most uh, obvious examples of this, and it's kind of, again, manifesting what I just said about electric cars and other transitions going on, is the way in which this carbon bubble and the unburnable carbon issue has now begun to be understood by investors who previously saw a pretty safe return by investing in Shell, BP and ExxonMobil and people, uh, but who it's been pointed out to that actually the assets that these companies have in the terms of oil and gas and then separately the coal companies, you can't burn it to stay below two degrees, never mind 1.5 degrees and even for a two degree pathway something like two thirds of that has to remain in the ground. Now if these companies are valued on the the assets that they have, which in those cases is fossil fuels, and you realize that they're worthless because you can't use them, then this actually amounts to a huge systemic risk in that particular bit of the market to the point where companies are saying, investment companies are saying, well, look, you know, this is um, looking uh, like it's got no future. Let's move our money into renewables, into other sustainable sectors where there is a future. And so that's beginning to happen. And this is quite new. You can see us similar uh, shift taking place in relation to some of the agricultural commodities and indeed even in relation to factory farming people are beginning to put two and two together and saying look you know this actually is presenting a level of risk that we didn't see before and which we need to manage and that means moving our money into different enterprises or at least engaging with the people who are investing in these kinds of uh, uh, economic activities to get them to do something different over time to begin the transition. So the investment side, I think, is huge, growing. And probably, actually, if I just add to the comments made a second ago about the relative impact between the public, the companies and, and the, the governments, it's probably the financial sector that is now probably the biggest rising force over the next couple of years. And one which um, is set to make quite an impact, I would say. Right, that's very interesting. Uh, in this synoptic overview, I, I can't resist just getting your sense of uh, the, the implications of the Trump uh, administration already. We've seen uh, some pretty, uh, yes. yeah, yeah. Yes, well, it's, it's, well it's, it's quite amusing at one level to, 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 to see the, uh, the transparency of the agenda there in basically appealing to a core vote with... Um, junk arguments uh, that have got no foundation in reality for example the extent to which the climate change science is basically being questioned and so you know it, it's obviously a strategy that's doomed to failure it's just a question of how quickly it will fall over but the effect of it irrespective of that has been the opposite to what um, Donald Trump would have hoped for I dare say insofar as many states and uh, companies and cities in the United States have said okay well you know if you're not going to show leadership we will and what he might have done actually is accelerate the move towards low carbon rather than to slow it down and also you know it's revealed some really big splits in the administration I thought one of the more interesting things that was being said around that announcement of the withdrawal from the Paris Agreement was by Rex Tillerson, his own Secretary of State, who evidently has taken a more mature view of all of this and understood the economic implications of it. And basically, at the same time as the President was saying he's going to withdraw from Paris, uh, Rex Tillerson was saying nothing has changed and we're going to continue with our low-carbon journey. He's literally said that on the same day. So um, one can see the transparency of a political argument uh, harnessing an environment 
environmental question in order to sustain the core vote. It's pathetic um, in the sense of uh, the, the cynicism that lays behind it, and it's doomed to failure one way or the other. The question is just how quickly it will fall over. Right. Very interesting. I can't resist also, sorry, in the synoptic uh, picture there, uh, China. On the one hand, people are saying that uh, yes. it's very positive that they're going to take global yeah. leadership. At the same time, they seem to be trucking on ahead with their coal-fired uh, power and so forth. What's your sense of yes. the, 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 the role of China? Well, the, the, the Chinese are not deniers. They're not taking short-term political uh, actions. What they are doing is looking at the long view and um, planning the transition of their economy from one place to another over a period of time and because they are unencumbered with some of the political volatility of the West they're very likely to do it and actually as part of my work with the University of Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership it is striking for me how much engagement we're now having with Chinese politicians and business people and indeed only this week I've been involved with two major programs here in Cambridge one with a group of mayors from Guangdong uh, the most important industrial province of China and a group more of, of entrepreneurs from Hong Kong who've been here in Cambridge with us looking at how they can adopt strategies for sustainable business and sustainable policy going forward and these people are very serious and uh, it's striking how many of them are being uh, uh, contacted through the program here in Cambridge at the moment and how many of them are turning up compared to what we might see from American corporations it, it, it is fascinating and I do think in the next five years we might find that China has replaced the United States uh, as the uh, driving force on, on climate change outcomes and will be a positive force uh, in, in shaping those outcomes. And the reason they will do this is because they, they're strategic and long-term, like some of the corporations. They're looking ahead. They can see the megatrends, the build-up of greenhouse gases, the resource depletion, the population growth, uh, the extent to which new markets are emerging, the way in which systemic systemic risk needs to be managed differently and they're responding to it in ways that are uh, mature logical sensible and evidence-based and as a result of that i think probably they will be dominating some of these markets uh, in clean technology going forward and actually it's quite interesting this week to hear the british government in the form of greg clark uh finally waking up and, and seeing that we've made some big errors in recent years and instead of repeating some of the nonsense of about the need to frack gas from beneath our little crowded island. We heard instead uh, of the need to begin uh, putting major investment into battery technology, which is exactly what China's been doing for a decade. Uh, whilst we've been looking underground, they've been looking towards a clean future, uh, not only solving climate change, but also urban air pollution problems which is another issue that's been big on the agenda here. So maybe the penny's beginning to drop in, in the dear old UK as well. I do hope so, because as we move towards the Brexit uh, door, I, I, I do feel that we, we may find ourselves going down some really unfortunate industrial and economic cul-de-sacs driven by the ideology uh, of taking back control rather than looking forward to some of these big questions that are going to be shaping the global future over the next few decades. Right. Very, very interesting. Just the the business, uh, you mentioned the Chinese business. Do you think the, the, the uh, business case for sustainability is well and truly proven now? Oh, yes, it's proven at, at so many levels at once. It's just the ability of, of executives to be able to see it. And, you know, as I say, this is, this is more or less the case. You've got very kind of... Uh, 
forward-thinking uh, leaders like uh, uh, Paul Polman at Unilever, who's understood all the dots and seen the SDGs as the new framework and is building a strategy for one of the world's largest consumer goods companies basically built upon that. Then you have some others um, who remain with their head firmly uh, looking backwards rather than forwards and, you know, in the coal and fossil fuel industry, whereas there should have been a program of transition and moving investments into renewables over recent years. They didn't do it. They're still not doing it and they're basically in a place of denial and, you know, this is going to be a cost to them and also to their shareholders and, of course, a cost to society at the same time. So, um, you know, the, 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 the business case is more or less visible depending on, on who you uh, talk to. But it's got many faces. One is the policy one. You know, if, if, if there is going to be a two-degree pathway and there's a global agreement that says there will be, then fossil fuels are basically finished. Uh, uh, do you expect that in 10 years' time, the 15- and 16-year-olds who are now coming through school and looking at all this stuff on social media, are they going to be buying products from companies that have not responded properly to this? As we enter a period of, of volatility in, in environmental terms, you know, do, do companies have all they need to be able to, to, to ride out that volatility? And so, for example, in the chocolate sector, something I've been looking at a little bit lately, there is now a very clear relationship between deforestation and drought. And cocoa requires a lot of rain to grow in the geographies where it grows. And so if you're not paying attention to deforestation as a cocoa company, you're probably putting yourself at risk. There's another business case there. Uh, and then, of course, there, there is the ongoing reputational risk as, as Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth and others uh, continue to build public support behind their campaigns. And if you're on the wrong side of that, it can do you serious harm, as has been proved the case many times in the past. So the business case is now overwhelming. Uh, it's just the ability of, of executives to be able to see it. And, of course, many of them are not trained in, in some of this. Uh, thinking and so they find it very hard indeed to break out of their very short term uh, market uh, thinking which of course is still overwhelmingly what is being uh, taught in economics departments and business schools um, bizarrely uh, actually I made the point the other day that you shouldn't be allowed to study economics without having first done a degree in ecology um, I think we're a little away from that but nonetheless I think there's some, there's some validity to that view Absolutely. I just spoke to Dick Norgard from the University of Berkeley, who's a fascinating figure and one of the key figures. I came out of Chicago, actually, developing uh, environmental economics back in the 1960s and a fascinating yeah. picture of, of um, yeah, the, 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 the need for ecological thinking in economics and, and so yeah. forth. Now, uh, that's a, a very interesting uh, uh, overview and more in-depth perspective. What you, you mentioned being more concerned or uh, been more looking more at the, the solving uh, the problems uh, maybe nowadays rather than you know trying to uh, see what see what's going on what are a few things on, on, on your plate that uh, that you're interested in uh, and, and, and putting your energy in um, so it, it remains quite a familiar mix but with, but with a different set of activities I guess in some ways so I'm still very active in uh, looking at the question of tropical deforestation and what can be done about that. And, you know, this is one place where you can see the narrative has shift recently. And so, as was the case with so many of these things over the years, uh, you had this view being expressed by companies and politicians that deforestation and other environmental destruction was the price of progress. This is how we have to um, build economies, and it's a regrettable but inevitable consequence of that. You now have companies and governments saying, actually, understand that without these forests we're going to be economically worse off 
and so working in that space with one or two countries and some companies um, is proving very interesting and hopefully productive uh, different bits of work going on on the marine plastic space uh, or the plastic waste issue more generally but mostly being driven these days by the build-up of, of plastics in the marine environment and this uh, is obviously um, now a very public uh, question which is now driving consumer um, awareness which in terms in terms of consumer goods companies is, is really quite a big challenge and so how are we going to fix that and one of the things I'm increasingly seeing on that side is how we need a systemic and joined up approach to that problem. We're not going to solve it through one company doing a bit more recycling or somebody else doing a little bit more consumer awareness. This is about the whole system. It's about the production of the material, the uh, use by consumers, and then the waste management system that gets it back again. It's a great example, actually, of the circular economy thinking that needs to emerge, whereby not only do you have one actor, i.e. a manufacturer, doing uh, the, 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 the new kind of business model, but you need everybody. And that obviously is, is a real challenge now. This is about building consensus, common cause across sectors. And actually that's another common feature, I think, of the emerging uh, world on sustainability is the need for whole corporate and uh, consumer and policy ecosystems to be working together rather than in isolation or worse still in opposition to each other which has been the case uh, evidently and also um, some interesting work going on on the um, question of low carbon energy with, with one piece there looking at the role for biomass and wood pellets and the extent to which that's part of the solution going forward and uh, obviously then linking back to forestry and land use and everything else so quite, quite a mixed bag but um, one that's rather different to what I was doing a decade Ago, which was really still at that stage trying to get different um, groups and organisations to be even saying that they needed to do something. So um, uh, I think we're in a positive place in that sense, but evidently nowhere near yet the end of the road. Yes, well, it sounds like you've got a very full plate. Now, you, you, looking at uh, the ways of dealing with the problems, and you, you emphasise clearly the the uh, hugely important role of policy, also of partnerships. I'm just wondering, can we talk a little bit about technology? It evokes strong feelings. I think many many see it as a silver bullet. A lot of money going into different technologies. Um, others uh, more concerned, and and certainly we've seen you know some social uh, major social problems coming out of uh, some of the technology platforms I think I've got some responsibility there yeah. what, what can, what's your sense of the the relative importance of technology in dealing with environment and the climate change very big question um, I know you, yeah, yeah. it's a huge question um, but I think the short answer is that it will be central uh, to, to what needs to happen um, but that it, it can't do it on, on its own um, you know and actually I remember this debate uh, very well during the period on the climate change issue at the global level over the early 2000s when there was a school of thought, um, very prominent um, free market driven uh, very often and, you know, anti-regulation that said, you know, the climate change issue is only going to be solved by technology, therefore you don't need global agreements to do it, just forget all this targets and timetables nonsense. Then on the other side, you had various people saying, well, you know, we, we have to have a political agreement, otherwise there'll be no certainty. And, and, the, and the reality of it was that uh, you, you know, you can't reach a global agreement without having the technology, and the technology is not going to 
get to scale without a global agreement. And so you, you kind of finish up realising that it's both and, I would say, and that if you do want to um, conserve tropical rainforest, cut carbon dioxide emissions, eliminate waste and go to a circular economy, uh, to do all this in a very efficient, smart way, then we're going to need a lot of tech technology and so you know that, that that's my basic um uh kind of conclusion but then you know you you know that that, that technology isn't going to work unless there is uh, backing from from the policy makers giving the right kinds of long-term signals and also the right kind of culture and behavior and so you know if, even with the best recycling facilities in the world you know if, if i I pick up a, a bottle of water in the shop and don't put it in a recycling bin and instead chuck it in the river. You know, this this is saying something about the cultural norms uh, um, that, uh, you know, have to shift at the same time as we have state-of-the-art circular economy technologies to turn bottles back into bottles. Um, you know, we, we're increasingly able to do that, but as long as people are still throwing these things into the environment, which they do do on an epic scale, then evidently, you know, the cultural piece also has to be part of the the, the solution. And then, of course, you know, as, as we enter this kind of fourth industrial revolution, as some people call it, you've got this kind of synergy between uh, digital nano bio technologies and, and, and nanotechnologies and everything else. You know, th th there was a huge jobs issue here as, as, as we move towards um, a, a different uh, and more efficient, hopefully more efficient economy. Um, so, for example, you know, if we did move towards super smart smart electric vehicles that use energy very sensibly, uh, which are being driven by computers. You know, there's going to be a lot of people who drive for a living whose jobs are going to be at risk. And, and we've got to factor that into this as we go forward. Otherwise, we're going to be potentially helping to take the edge off of environmental issues, but creating the most almighty social problems at the same time. And we have to avoid that at all costs. Well, absolutely. And, and it's very interesting you say that. And I guess this question of uh, technologies um, and, and the returns to technologies, I mean, certainly we've seen with, with, I guess, with platforms, some of these platform technologies, the main beneficiaries perhaps have been uh, shareholders, uh, uh, yes. private equity or, or uh, venture capital, uh, who somehow managed to kind of capitalize on, on you know, on all of the, the information yeah. that's in the system. I'm, I'm wondering about the governance of technology. I mean, it, it, you know, it's a very uh, yes. uh, thriving investment market in the west coast and so forth um is it is is it uh, fit for purpose do we need to think about other kinds of governance um another broad yes. question yeah. yeah well we did well i i think companies need to be thinking about business models and, and the social impact of those as, as, as well as you know the profitability and the environmental side and, and actually so it was very interesting you just mentioned that issue there about you know shareholders and the extent to which you know the benefits to to the new technology are going to fall in certain places more than others. I've reached the conclusion over the years that possibly the biggest environmental issue that nobody talks about at all is inequality and the extent to which the great divisions that have emerged between the very well-off and the less well-off actually are, are, are a major problem um, in all sorts of ways. And, you know, you, you, you see the extent to which people are being excluded from progress causes them to react badly and therefore to stop policy happening. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, that the part of um, Donald Trump's uh, platform of anti-environmentalism and speaking up for coal miners is exploiting that sense of exclusion that's felt by a lot of people. And so when you know you need to change policy, that there are people who can stop it happening simply by dint of appealing to people who feel as though they've been sidelined. And the same thing has happened in this country on um, energy efficiency with poor with groups advocating for poor people saying, well, we can't go down this energy efficiency route, it's going to put bills.
bills up for poor people and renewable energy is not affordable cost for people on low incomes and hardworking families can't afford it. All of that narrative only gets traction when you've got such big divisions between different groups of people. So that's a, a huge bit of the problem. You see it globally. Uh, it's less evident now because things have moved on. But, you know, for, for 20 years in the climate negotiations, uh, the differences between the rich and the poor countries was the main reason why nothing could be agreed. And so, you know, it was holding up fundamentally that the, the, the progress needs to be made. And then you look at some of the, you know, the trends that are shaping the modern world, the rise of middle class consumers, uh, uh, the poor everywhere for good reason want to have a car, a nice house, go on aeroplanes and everything else, that simply is not going to be possible to accommodate. And so again, you've got this psychological um, problem which emerges from differences between people or where everybody wants to be as well off as the most well off. And that manifestation of inequality drives behaviour in ways which again, are completely antithetical to what we need to do in reducing environmental impact. So this is a huge, massive thing. And if the technology that we adopt in the future makes this worse uh, by excluding people from the benefits of, of progress, then the political difficulties and the psychological difficulties of, of moving forward are going to be all the bigger. And this is something that's hardly talked about in the sustainability space, but one of the things I do think we have to have on the table going forward, and which is going to have to be central to this whole question of how we harness technology, because if this finishes up just making the group of multi-billionaire tech giants who, you know, they were in the news again this week, the richest people in the world now are basically running Google, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, these kinds of companies. If these purveyors of technology finish up concentrating wealth even more into their institutions at the same time as destroying jobs elsewhere, then that inequality piece is going to run headlong straight into the so-called environmental solutions coming from technology and they will stop because that will be a, a political and social barrier that, that will be more powerful than even the cleverest data heads in Silicon Valley. Oh, it's fascinating. And I know that uh, I spoke to Doug Rushkoff, who wrote uh, Throwing bus Stones at the, the Google Bus, and he talks about some of this question of, you know, the platform technologies and so forth. And he, he's, he's uh, pointed out that there are cooperatively owned alternatives to many of the platforms out there. Um, uh, and yet uh, they, they haven't reached the same kind of scale or anything like that. But the, no. And I, well, this then, yeah. then, then brings in the, the discussion around different kinds of not only business models, but also different kinds of institutions. And so the B Corp idea and having uh, companies that are not only there for the profitability of the shareholder, but bringing social benefits. Uh, and that potentially is going to be one way in which some of this uh, can become uh, more joined up. And again, this then, um, I think, reinforces the, the point of the business case we were talking about earlier on, because the more these things do become apparent to different people in positions to, to, to bring forward new kinds of ideas, then the more the incumbency and the established organisations become vulnerable to being outflanked and sidelined as better ideas emerge. And so I, I do think that, that investors big organizations who, who think they might be part of the solution, they've got to keep their eye on this wider set of questions rather than simply going down rabbit burrows of particular technologies that might look quite good individually, but actually in the end might be helping to exacerbate a systemic set of issues that in the end will mean they can't work. 
Well, that's right, and the, the profit uh, profit motive is uh, you know it, it creates a lot of m- m- momentum, but um, also you know big problems as well. And I'm just wondering uh, what 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 hope do you see for new models emerging like this? I mean, you see lots of talk of uh, big impact investors investing in these projects, but um, and private equity moving in there and so forth. And you know it, there, there is a question to be asked there, really, in, in in some cases, in many cases, you know, is this really impact? investment is this what's the concessionary element of this is this just like any other private equity investment a virgin territory where you can create you know monopoly uh companies and things like that um well i think i i guess in the end that this is going to depend on our, our collective ability to 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 do synthesis as well as analysis if i can put it like that because the the, the modern uh, kind of competence that, that, that we need to grow is being able to take the broad view and to synthesize between different issues as we're discussing here between climate, between job creation, between technology, between investment, between politics and to be taking the sweep of view across all of that and joining it together rather than going down particular routes that don't see this wider set of connections and I think you know the tendency in, in western societies over the last very long period actually a couple of hundred years has been to encourage knowing more and more about less and less and to get ultra specialization and to be able to see very specific uh uh, opportunities and to pursue them in isolation from from the bigger view and this sustainability question that, that we're discussing now and which is you know the, the the big issue of our age i think it's going to require people to think a little bit more broadly and more kind of uh uh, uh comprehensively in, in integrated holistic ways and that's something that we've lost um, the ability to do in many cases and certainly many of the companies as I work with, they find it very hard to do that. Uh, they're dealing with a particular challenge, crisis uh, that's on their desk today, and they find it very hard to step back and see that that particular crisis on their desk today is going to be the most almighty crisis in a several years' time, uh, and that in order to avoid that, it's going to require a different approach to the one that they've become used to, which is crisis management, doing specific things to deal with what they see as a specific issue. So that... Um, I, I think is the big question and how do we train people to do that well I would say that you know economics departments and business schools I mentioned them earlier on there's certainly a place there for those kinds of uh, bodies to, to be fostering this ability to take the systemic view to do systems thinking rather than to be training people in how to run a spreadsheet or to how to generate profit out of a particular enterprise that no longer is sufficient not if we're going to have a sustainable future Right. You mentioned the SDGs and the tremendous momentum there as a framework. Do you think that, I don't know how familiar you are with this particular aspect, but do you think the scope there for this more systemic element? Because there seems to be a, a lot of very, very worthy uh, goals in there, but I, I don't know yes. what the process is to, to measure trade-offs and to consider these yeah. other systemic questions. Yeah, well, I think that the, the very powerful thing about the SDGs um, is the extent to which they are a comprehensive package. So you've got everything in there from jobs through to um, conserving biodiverse ecosystems and that that has to be the right way of, of looking at all, all of this and putting them out there as, as, as a group that you, you see all at once hopefully will be something that, that people can begin to respond to and everyone will have different choices and trade-offs and uh, actually hopefully the idea of trade-offs will begin to diminish as we start to look for you know sweet spots and the integrated kind of idea of, of 
where the best place is to put yourself as a consumer goods company or as an energy company or as uh, somebody who makes apparel, whatever it would be. Hopefully the mindset that emerges from the SDGs takes us more away from that idea of, you know, that there the, the are places where we have to kind of like, you know, trade this against that and to say, actually, this is the sweet spot where we need to be moving in the future to achieve a net benefit uh, for, for society and, and the environment. Um, I'm not sure how close we are to that yet, but you know, again, I, I say I, I get glimpses of, of people evidently taking this kind of view, and, and the more we get of that, then, then perhaps the more optimistic that we can be about our ability to solve some of these things. Fascinating, fascinating. I don't know whether we could slip in one question. It's a, it's a. We talk about technology. Um, we've covered an awful lot of ground here. Uh, very rich discussion. Uh, geoengineering is, is another very controversial topic. Do you have a point of view on that? Um. Um, uh, I, 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 it depends. I mean, there's such a range of, of, of ideas that are, are kind of you know in, in the geoengineering um, heading uh, that it's, it's difficult to, to, to be very general about it and make any sense. But, but um, you know, I, I fear that if 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 we waste the next fifteen to twenty years um, and don't do all that we need to do, then we may finish up in a position where we've got no option but to start looking at some of those things, depending on what they are. But they all come uh, in different ways with, with with risks and downsides that that uh, you know potentially could could have very serious consequences. And, and so, I think probably uh, the smart thing would be to avoid having to do that and we've still got time just about it seems to be able to to go on a crash low carbon trajectory and to do that as our best probably cheapest and certainly safest option of being able to to lay the foundations for a secure future Uh, so you know I I think the geoengineering piece is not going to go away it will be on the table and it will become more or less prominent depending on how successful we are over the next period and and so I think that's where we need to focus right are you optimistic Tony I I know um, the the pace of change you talk about the momentum and so forth but there are clearly uh, some who who say you know we really need to be moving a lot faster and are you know I know at uh, John Elkington and so forth they talk about this more exponential approach um how do you feel um so um i i I regard it as a as a professional competence uh to to be relentlessly optimistic (laughs) and and so um i do think that we get further quicker if we can paint a positive picture of um, how we're going to get there and the chances of getting there and so what we're dealing with is, is so complicated and so sprawling that um, you know you do need to take that kind of gut view of it because once you get into the detail, anything could happen. I mean, literally anything could happen. And so if you look at the mega trends there from the population, economic growth, resource, climate point of view and biodiversity, then it doesn't look too good. But then again, if you look at the opportunities we have to bring forward things we've already invented, never mind to innovate and go further, then you can see that actually it could be done, so long as those different groupings that we talked about earlier, the governments, the companies, and the public can get aligned to the point where all of this can go very quickly. It could happen. Uh, but then again, it may not. Uh, but I think as a, you know, it is incumbent, it's our duty for those of us who see this, uh, to say that it can be done, uh, and indeed that it will be done, uh, and, and so that remains my my kind of day to day perspective on it. Uh, because actually, the other thing to bear in mind is that if if uh, you look at the scale.
what's needed and then the chances of us getting there in time then probably the quickest and surest way of making sure we don't do it is to be pessimistic and to say that it can't be done um which is you know plausible uh through some readings of the information that we have but i'd be inclined not to say it well tony uh that optimism is very infectious and uh thank you so much for uh, sharing your perspective, the wealth of insights and all the work you've been doing and your vision for the future with me today. My pleasure, Phil. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me there. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. 